You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. My name is Patty, and I'll be reading from Matthew 12, 1 through 21. At that time, Jesus went through the green fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Patty. I'm going to pray as we get into this together, okay? Father, we love your word. We love being able to hear from you every week as we gather together, even every day as we read your word on our own. And we want your word to not just be something that we hear, but something that changes us, that moves us. And so we pray that you would come now, Holy Spirit, and do that work in each person who's present with us and who's present online watching this. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, if I were to sum up everything that we're going to be looking at and, and what we just heard read for us, I would say that we're going to talk about two things, uh, rules and rest, okay? Rules and rest, two things that don't really seem to necessarily go together, but you'll see how they do go together. And before we look specifically at rest, I want to just have us together think through this issue of rules. I want, to, I want to think about this with you for a moment, about how your family of origin went about making rules and enforcing them, okay? So think about how your family of origin made rules and enforced them. I've known a wide range of people who've had a wide range of experiences in this way. I'll give you a few examples. One person I knew, uh, their dad functioned as the head of the house, right? And their system of making rules was sort of a thus saith the dad, if you will, okay? And so sometimes, as the, the, the dad thus said, it was very reasonable. These rules were predictable. The, the kids could follow along. But other times, dad was moody. He had a short fuse, and, and sometimes dad would just explode, you know, things that were kind of inexplicable would upset him to the point where out of nowhere he would be verbally and sometimes even physically abusive with the kid who displeased him in that moment. Everyone learned really quickly in this household, you don't want to upset dad. You're going to get shamed. You might even get beaten. Another example uh, another kind of family dynamic that you may have experienced growing up, and this one is where the kids rule the house. Okay, forget about not wanting to upset dad. Your parents don't want to upset you, right? Not because they'd be shamed and beaten, but because you will whine and complain. And so the parents' goal then is to not upset the kids, and it, they're, they're willing to, to take any measure necessary to do so. In other words, the parents might make the rules, but you decide whether those rules will be enforced. Still a third kind of a family dynamic is one that a friend of mine had growing up, and, and his, his family was operating like this. His, his father was a perennial pot smoker. I mean, dude was just stoned 24-7, right? Super lazy, couldn't keep a job, that kind of a guy, right? And what does that do? Well, mom is always trying to run the family on her own. She's, she's working. She's trying to make ends meet. She's disciplining the kids. She's running the entire household. It's, she's a functional single mom, right? And this brokenness eventually led to his parents' divorce when he was about 10 years old. And the problem was, dad still had joint custody. And so it was quickly made clear that, that when my friend and his brother were with dad on those weeks, that dad wasn't going to take care of them. They didn't even have food. And my friend and his brother, they would just roam the streets as early as, I think my friend was 11 years old. They would sleep in any vacant shack that they could find or any friend's sofa that they could find. So this example is one where there are no rules, right? Now, you may have had an upbringing similar to one of these or maybe something else Entirely. I mean, maybe your family really had a healthy way of making and enforcing rules. Maybe you had rules that were explained to you and they made sense to you from a young age and they were not enforced with 
fear and, and with all this, these awful ways that people, parents can respond, but they were enforced with, with love and you knew that you were cared for. Maybe Jesus, in your upbringing, maybe Jesus was even the Lord of your household. I don't know. But regardless of what your upbringing was like, you might be wondering, why am I talking about this? Why are we talking about all these rules and these ways that we might have been formed? And the reason is because whatever your family's relationship was to rules, there's a really good chance that that affects the way that you view rules today. You might uh, embrace their way of doing things or you might be reacting against their way of doing things. But as a result, when it comes to your relationship with God, you may have some very major distortions around what it means to obey Him. Now, if you're with us two weeks ago, we actually talked about this. We looked at the words of Jesus where He said at the end of chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, whatever the way that your family of origin functioned, Jesus is offering a new way to obey God's rules. He's offering a new way, and it involves being yoked to Jesus, being connected with Him. Because when your soul is united to Him, you don't carry your burdens alone. He will carry your burdens with you, and you will find rest for your souls. With Jesus, then, obedience and rule-keeping and all of these sorts of things, it's no longer sour, it's no longer distorted or tainted or burdensome. Walking with Jesus is it's light. It's light, and, and it's amazing. And in today's stories, uh, they take place immediately following those words that we just looked at of Jesus. And the stories are ultimately about that same subject. They're about rest. And specifically, they're about a dispute that Jesus had with these religious leaders of his day. The dispute was about the day of rest, the Sabbath. Every week, Jews were required to work six days and rest one. And even today, if you go to Jerusalem or places with high concentrations of Jewish people, you can observe them practicing the Sabbath or the Shabbat as they call it. You could go to you know, Brooklyn, New York and, and walk the streets and see uh, Jews wandering around or even go, go up to the, the northeast neighborhood in Seattle called Bryant. Tons of Jews up there and you can see on, on the Sabbath day, on Saturdays, they're not driving around, they're not running errands, they're not at work, they're walking the streets, they're enjoying time with their family and their friends and their neighbors. They've slowed down. Now, why do they practice this as a culture? Why do Jews practice that? And the answer is because it's actually woven into the fabric of creation. I know it sounds big, but it's true. It's woven into the fabric of creation. Check this out. Genesis chapter 2 tells us, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done 
in creation. God completes the work of creation and he made rest a part of his good design for life on earth. Sounds great, right? I mean, who doesn't want to rest? But take into consideration the fact that humans sin and and we rebel against God's design and that includes rejecting something good like rest. And so it might sound crazy, but God actually had to command his people to rest in order to get them to do it. Check this out. In Exodus chapter 20, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Wow, okay. So the Sabbath we see here, it wasn't just for the privileged, right? It it wasn't just for the wealthy, the upper class people. It wasn't just for the majority people. It was for Everyone. It was for the servants. It was for the, the, the sojourner. In other words, the, the refugees and the immigrants, the foreigners. Heck, it even says it was for the livestock, the, the, the cattle, right? God has built the need for rest in all of creation. And so here, he includes it in the Ten Commandments. Did you notice that? This is a part of the Ten Commandments. I just want you to think about that for just a second. As Western American Christians, we hold to all the other Ten Commandments, or sorry, the the other nine commandments, and yet for some reason, we've decided not to apply this one to ourselves. More on that later, okay? We're going to come back to that. But for now, what I want to do is bring us to the story. You might be like, wow, what is going on here? Joel's already this far in, and we haven't even looked at the text from today. It's all good, okay? We're going to get to it. Here we go. We're going to come back to the stories that we heard read by Patty earlier on, and we're going to blast through these a little bit more quickly than we normally do, and the point that I want to get to is what is the main point that Jesus is making, okay? And I'm going to look at three main points that he's making. The first one is, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I want to read that to you again. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law on the Sabbath how the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now remember, we're talking about rules and rest. And here in this story, it's the Sabbath day and Jesus and his disciples are are 
roaming and his disciples are following him because they've yoked themselves to him, right? And, and they're going through this field and they're hungry. And so what do they do? They, they're plucking wheat berries and, and eating them. And the religious elite, these Pharisees as they're called, they're, they're obsessed with rule keeping and, and they're probably a bit like that father that I mentioned earlier in the message, the, the one whose household was run on the thus saith the dad system, right? You remember him? They, they, you don't want to upset the Pharisees. They, they're not going to be happy and it's not going to go well for you, okay? And they're so obsessed with rule keeping that they've taken this beautiful gift it's an amazing gift, this, the Sabbath rest that God offers to all of His creation, and they've added a whole bunch of extra rules to it. This, they've, they've brought this cultural element to what God has already stated, and they've added a whole bunch extra to what He has made clear. And everything about Jesus we've seen is offensive to these Pharisees, Right? but especially his claims to be above their rules. That really ticks them off. And in the end, that's what this interplay is about. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Is it Jesus or is it them? And Jesus says he's in charge. He says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It's his way of saying, I am the Messiah. And as the Messiah... Jesus says that he has the right to speak on the behalf of God. In fact, he takes it even further and he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Now, the temple is where God met with humans. And Jesus says it's, it's better now than it was before. The temple is better, it's greater, because he says he is now where God meets with humanity. Audacious claim. Jesus is where God meets with humanity. Audacious if it's not true, or amazing if it is true. And it is. And so, as the new temple of God, Jesus gets to determine what the worship of God looks like. And in many ways, the worship of God doesn't change. It's, it's, it's in many ways the same as before in the sense that God's heart hasn't changed. See, Jesus tells them, he says, God desires mercy and not sacrifice, meaning that the heart of the rules about rest, they remain the same. It doesn't mean there are no rules. It means that the rules, uh, sorry, it doesn't mean that no one needs to keep the Sabbath, but it means that the rules, the, the sacrifices are the, is a term that he uses, those sacrifices must be subservient to mercy, to compassion. So we have to ask the question, okay, but, but were all these rules bad then? Does that mean that the rules were bad? No, but they became bad when they prevented this religious elite group from following the heart of God. And I want to think about this with you because this feels kind of distant from us. We're like, okay, I don't follow all those rules, so what does this mean for me? Well, I want to think about this in a way that we might have the same sort of problems as the Pharisees did today as Christians. Can you think of any ways that we might do something similar? I'll give you an example. So let's just say, hypothetically speaking, 
Christians liked adding rules to the Bible. That's a joke, by the way. Just hypothetically speaking, Christians liked adding rules to the Bible, okay? And let's just say, man, you guys really, I don't know if it was my delivery on that. <laughs> we like adding rules to the Bible, okay? Yes. And, uh, and, and, and let's just say that there was a rule that Christians followed in order to stay in line with the Scriptures or with God's rules, Okay? I'm going to give you one example that came to mind for me this week, and that is the Billy Graham rule. Some of you guys might have heard of this before. This is where men are to avoid spending time alone with a woman who's not their wife. Good rule? I think it's a good rule. It's a pretty good rule. But I do need to pull aside for just a second and address something, because I know there's some women in the room who are going, what? Hold on. Uh, this rule has a lot of baggage around it because sometimes it's presented in a way that makes women out to be like a villain. Like they're just out to get you and make you commit adultery and they're the problem. And and in in those cases, of course, that's not a good rule. But what, what I think is good about it is that the heart is that it would protect both the man and the woman from uh from being unfaithful to their marriage covenant, from committing adultery. And is that good? That's good, right? We can say that. But are there times where this rule could become a bad rule? And I would say, yes, there are. Uh, I'll give you an example from my own life. I'd say I generally follow the Billy Graham rule. I think it's helpful in a lot of ways. But probably... I don't know, around 10 years ago or so, I'm hanging out with a friend of mine and his wife, and he's a barista, and we're hanging out at, at the, the coffee shop that he was working at, and I had to go, and I was going in a direction that his wife had to go at the same time, only she didn't have a car. And she asked me, she says, is, is it okay if I grab a ride? And I had the Billy Graham rule pop up in my head, and I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do? I can't be alone with a woman, and I'm, I'm really thinking about this for a minute, I'm going, okay, and her husband's standing right there, okay, so he knows that this is about to happen, uh, and I'm thinking, okay, well, that's, that's probably not too bad of a situation, and then I think, oh, well, I could just tell my wife that I'm going to do this, and she knows where I'm going, and she knows all this stuff, okay, great, and I, so I text my wife, I give my friend a ride to where she's going. Okay, my friend probably would have been okay if I had told her no. Like she wasn't going to die. You know what I mean? She she was going to be just fine. Maybe she'd have to catch a bus or get a ride from someone else or walk or something like that. But it was a good thing to do, right? But men, just suppose for a second that there's a woman who's in danger, some way, and and in order to help her you would have to be alone with her. And then Jesus shows up and he taps you on the shoulder. He's like, I want you to go help that woman, right? Are you going to obey Billy Graham or Jesus? <laughs> That's the point. And we kind of get into these situations all the time with kind of cultural expectations or norms. Who is it that has ultimate authority? Is it Jesus or someone else? And obviously, as Christians, it's, it's Jesus, and the same scenario in this story uh, is, is happening in this story about Jesus and his disciples. And so he says, 
that he and also those who follow him, he says they're guiltless. They haven't done anything wrong because they're elevating this idea of mercy and not sacrifice, and they're doing it because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, this leads now to Jesus' rule for rest. He has one main rule for rest. Here's what he says. Do good on the Sabbath, beginning in verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man or a human than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now this sounds so obvious to us, doesn't it? Can you imagine God coming down and saying, thou shalt not do good on the Sabbath, right? It's not going to happen. But this had to be clarified because of how absurd humans can be when it comes to rules. Now later in Mark's gospel, Jesus says something very similar that I think is helpful to understand. He says, the Sabbath was not made for humanity, Uh, sorry, got that backwards. The Sabbath was made for humanity. Humanity was not made for the Sabbath. See, the moment that keeping the rules prevents you from loving people and loving God, the moment that it keeps you from showing compassion, the rules are bad rules. Doing good is always good. Now, in the case of this man, here's a man with a withered hand. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on. Maybe he has a palsy or it's, it's paralyzed in some way. This guy is not going to die if Jesus doesn't heal him. And Jesus could have just as easily healed him the next day when it, the Sabbath was over, right? But Jesus figures, why wait to love this man? Don't you love that? Why wait to love this man? I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, I'll be kind to him Tomorrow, that would be crazy. Jesus heals the man and he does it also to prove this point. This point, don't get so hung up on following the rules that you stop following Jesus. Don't get so hung up on the cultural expectations that you choose not to do a good thing for someone. And so then Jesus demonstrates this rule to do good on the Sabbath, and he fulfills it. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Okay, So Jesus heals all of these people. He does good on the Sabbath just like he told us to do. And now Matthew is going to explain it. Matthew is going to tell us what all of this means. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. You might remember those exact words that came down from heaven from God the Father when Jesus was baptized. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles or the nations or all ethnic groups. 
He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles or the nations will hope. Okay, Matthew says that Jesus fulfilled these words that we just heard from Isaiah at this time, that, that Jesus, it says, brought justice to victory, that in him the Gentiles or the nations will hope, right? These sorts of things. But if you're like me, you might be thinking to yourself, well, well hold on, Did, has justice been brought to victory? Has this, this work been completed? And, and, and if not, when will Jesus bring justice to victory? When will the Gentiles find hope in his name? When will the nations, people from every culture, class, country, and color, hope in the Messiah? Well, what we can say is that these things did happen, at least in part, when Jesus first came. That they have been, in part, fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. In showing mercy, Jesus heals these people, right? He shows what it's like when he is the one who is ruling as king. And he unites people. We've seen him do this. We've seen him do it across even ethnic divides. We've even seen Jesus bring justice, doing things like what he just did for these people, healing them, not breaking these bruised reeds, as it says, or not snuffing out these smoldering wicks, meaning... Jesus defends the cause of those who are suffering. Jesus defends the cause of those who are vulnerable. Jesus defends the cause of those who are oppressed. This is why as Christians, we have a heart for people in those kinds of circumstances because God has a heart for people in those circumstances. See, when we feed the hungry or when we help people who are stuck in addiction or in abuse, when we protect children, when we care for the elderly or the orphan, we're just trying to show a little of what our king is like. That's what Jesus is like. Amen? And so this prophecy, it was fulfilled in part when Jesus came, and today it's continuing to be fulfilled through Jesus' body, the church, He's bringing justice to victory. Ultimately, Matthew's pointing also to Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, God's justice being won by Jesus for us and and being, being brought to victory in the resurrection of Jesus. And we're seeing how people from every ethnic group in the world, people are beginning to find hope in His name, but these things are not yet complete. These things will happen in full when Jesus returns to right all wrongs. Where the Bible says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? And those who love Him will experience the fullness and completion of what is described here in this prophecy. You see, Jesus did good on the Sabbath because that's what the Messiah does. Jesus did good on the Sabbath because that is what God is like. Yes, God has a lot of rules, but he has rules for humans to flourish. That's the purpose. 
And he is ultimately about bringing this final and eternal rest. That's what is being foreshadowed here, which he's going to do completely in the future. And you see, that is what the Sabbath is for. That's what it's all about. We haven't even defined Sabbath yet for you, so I figured I'd wait till the end of the message to do it. But the Sabbath is a gift from God for us to take a whole day to live as if the final rest has already come. Think about that for just a second. Do you experience that reality? Do you receive this gift from God? You know, we talked about it a bit earlier on in the service, but we probably all have a growing awareness that life according to the standards of our culture is unsustainable. You probably experience this every day, this, this pressure to be always on, to always be available for that work project, to, to inundate yourself with more and more and more information to keep up with the pace of those around you, to fill your life with more and more stress, working inhumane hours with inhumane expectations, never resting, never stopping, or, or if you do have some semblance of rest, you, it, it comes in the form of entertainment and, and escape because you don't ever get that true rest. And what I want you to see is this, this description I've just given you of our culture and what we experience. While it's not the laws of the Pharisees, it's the same in the sense that it's binding on us, that it enslaves us. We are enslaved to our culture even if we volunteered for it. But Sabbath, friends, it's God's gift to us. He's... He's freed us from that oppression of our culture, freed us from the bondage of just having to do what everyone around us is always doing. And so I want to ask you and make you think a little bit about, do you practice the Sabbath? And, and if, if so, why? If not, why not? Maybe you've never even thought about practicing the Sabbath. Maybe you figured you would have to be a Jew to practice the Sabbath. Maybe you figured you'd have to get one of these hats here. You know, if you were going to practice the Sabbath, you have to get dressed up and, and do it in, in a particular way. So maybe you've just never even thought about it. Maybe, maybe you've thought about practicing the Sabbath, but you don't think that you should. But as I said earlier, we practice nine out of the Ten Commandments. We don't commit, we, we repent if we've committed idolatry or adultery or, you know, coveting our neighbor's stuff, all these kinds of things, but, but why do we not practice the Sabbath? Or maybe you want to practice the Sabbath. You're like, rest, it sounds so good, but you don't feel like you can. Maybe, maybe you've got these kind of expectations that are just unattainable, like you have this picture in your mind of Sabbath, maybe it doesn't have the hats and everything, right? But maybe you picture yourself kind of having this Zen moment, you're in the lotus position, you know, you, you don't lift a finger, you don't do anything that whole day, right? Maybe you have an unattainable vision of the Sabbath. Or maybe you don't practice the Sabbath because you just don't think it's a gift. You're like, how could rules be a gift, right? 
And, and this comes back to what we talked about at the beginning, the way that you relate to rules and the way that you relate to God's rules. Maybe you learned to hate rules and, and, you, and you hate the idea of the Sabbath. Or maybe you're just afraid. Maybe you're afraid of what will happen to you if you slow down. What will happen if you stop? Maybe you've got like major FOMO going on, you know? And you just can't imagine a life where, where Sabbath is a regular part of your rhythms. Maybe you're afraid not, not just of missing out on something, but you're afraid of what's going to happen if you slow down. What's going to happen if my soul is at rest? What am I going to become aware of? Maybe there's some parts of me that I don't like that I'm going to see more clearly if I stop. Or you might be afraid... Maybe you're like me. This is probably the biggest one for me that prevents me from practicing Sabbath. It's I'm afraid of not getting that thing done. I love getting things done. And, and you, your life is just full of more and more and more and more stress. And you're just afraid. You're, my to-do list, it's stacking up and I can't neglect it. Because that means I'm going to have more stress in the future. And you're, you're like that smoldering wick that Jesus described here. This smoldering wick, you're just about on the verge of burnout. Friends, Jesus invites you today. He says, come to him and Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. Have, have you ever thought, just what would it look like for me to just receive that gift? God, you've given it. I'm just going to grab hold of it. I'm going I'm to receive it from you. And what if, what if practicing the Sabbath, it's less about keeping the rules and it's more about just coming to Jesus as he lifts our burdens from us and we enjoy his presence. Now, to be clear, giving ourselves rules can actually be helpful. Even in the context of Sabbath, I'll give you a couple examples. My own family, we, we typically practice the Sabbath on Saturdays. That's a rule. Every Saturday, we practice the Sabbath because I work on Sundays, so we kind of have to keep that day reserved for us. Or another rule, we, we tend to fast from screens when we Sabbath. It's another rule. And these rules can be helpful because we found that it gives us this reset of our body of like paying more attention to who God is, this, this day of rest, paying more attention to one another. Our bodies and our souls get renewed on this day of rest. But what I want you to hear is that these rules, they're not binding. They're not binding. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, not our rules. See, we're free. We don't have to open up this gift from God on Saturday per se, right? In fact, many Christians throughout history have practiced it on Sundays. We also don't have to fast from screens. Our family doesn't. You don't. Uh, some Saturdays our family needs our screens for, you know, mapping to an event or, or enjoying some music and, and they get pulled out. You might, you might have all kinds of different ways that you choose to enjoy your Sabbath rest. Like I said, most Christians throughout history, they've, they've practiced Sabbathing on Sunday because it's the day that Jesus rose. It's the first day of the new week, right? And so part of Sabbath should be coming together with the people of God, enjoying His presence, and worshiping Him together on Sundays. 
It's a great way to practice Sabbath. Or you might be someone who's really active, and the idea of stopping and just doing nothing feels like death to you. You're like, that is not life-giving. I don't want to just sit there like that lotus position vision. I don't want to do that. And maybe your Sabbath day is still active, but it's full of activity that you don't get to do normally, that, that just enriches you. You love being outside, except for like on a day like today. <laughs> you love going on hikes or, or, or exercising. Or maybe, like me, you, you love using your Sabbath day as a day to be creative in ways that you don't often get to. You're giving yourself that opportunity as you come before God. Or maybe you're uh, more of a, a, a person who's a quiet person and you'd rather enjoy kind of re- uh, removal from your normal busyness and activity. Maybe you just like, Sabbath is a day where I quietly read and my, my body stops. I'm just slowing down. Or maybe it's a day like our family often ends up doing is playing games together on the Sabbath day. One person who's helped me think about this a lot is a woman named Ruth Haley Barton. She wrote a book recently actually on, uh, not, not on rules and rest, but on rest and, and uh, what is it? It's on Sabbathing and sabbatical, that's what it's on. And she says that for these Jews who had been liberated from Egyptian slavery, practicing God's gift of Sabbath would have been an act of resistance. It would have been declaring freedom from the oppression of those who enslaved them. So think about that for a minute. She says the Sabbath, it's not just a gift, but it's actually an act of resistance. It's a way of saying, we are free to live on God's terms for us. We are not living under the oppression of or the rule of our culture's norms or our culture's expectations. We belong to God And so we will live under his lordship, and that's what celebrating the Sabbath looks like. And in a similar way, see, friends, we can can become captives, as I said earlier, to our culture. We can just do whatever everyone else is doing, which certainly does not include resting in Jesus. But you see, if we're going to go along with our culture's habits of never-ending busyness and stress and restlessness... While it, while it looks like freedom, like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing what I want to do, it's actually submitting ourselves to a yoke of oppression. It's actually binding ourselves to something other than Jesus, to something other than His Lordship. And so I want you to just think, will we allow our culture to dictate whether we enjoy God's gifts? I hope you say No. Will we allow it to determine whether we stop working and start resting? Are we holding the world together? Like, is it up to us to make sure that the world doesn't fall apart? Or can we trust God on a day where we stop? Can we trust Him to keep the world intact while we Sabbath? And I'll give you a quick story as I wrap it up here of a way that I'm having to... uh, enjoy God's gift of Sabbath in in exclusion to something that I'm naturally inclined to do, okay? So some of you guys who've been around me, you might even laugh at this a little bit, but you you know that I tend to be a pretty clean person. Uh, I'm a very active person, so I'm very busy. I love creating order out of things that are chaotic, 
And so I, I, I tend to be a very responsible person. I like taking care of the things that I'm responsible for. And I need you guys to know right now, my yard is a mess. It's a disaster, like real bad. We, we live in the high point development up there. And so we're part of the Homeowners Association and we have a bunch of bamboo that some unintelligent person planted back there. And like, you guys know what that stuff does, right? Um, and, and it's actually against the rules of our homeowners association, so that we get like notifications that we need to pull the bamboo, and we need to get rid of it, and of course you can't. Um, we've got all sorts of weeds everywhere, we've got overgrown bushes that really badly need to be trimmed. In the front, uh, the city of Seattle actually recently gave us a notice that we had broken their rules, uh, and, and they told us that the law says that we have to get the moss off of our sidewalk, Okay. And I'm like, geez, guys, this is the Northwest, you know? What? <laughs> but, but you see, I, I just wrapped up my final week of seminary classes this week. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Oh, man. I'm, I, I forced my family to jump up and down in a circle with me earlier this week, and we're just, hallelujah. Um, and, and as I've been in seminary for these past few years, I have not had a lot of extra time on my hands. I have very little margin, which is really hard for me. And in the middle of that, it's been really tempting for me to do this yard work on my Sabbath day. Now, friends, can we say that yard work is good? I'm surprised at how many of you said yes. I thought everyone would be like, no, yard work is not good. It really depends on who you ask, right? But yard work's good. I mean, taking care of what God has entrusted to us, that's a good thing. But you see, so is Sabbathing. Sabbathing is taking care of what God has entrusted to us. It's taking care of our souls. For me, it's also helping take care of the souls of my family. So the yard work's going to have to wait. It's really hard for me to let it wait. Hopefully I'll get around to it in a couple weeks. But you see, friends, I'm just giving you an example of why I practice the Sabbath. Because I, I believe that if God gave us this gift, not only does he love us, but he knows that we need it. And so we need to trust him. And once a week, we just need to stop. And you know, this, the Sabbath, it's so refreshing and I want you to imagine what would happen if we were a community that was regularly practicing the Sabbath. If one day a week as a community, what would happen if we just slowed down and rested in Jesus? We'd be going against the grain of our culture. We'd be living under the lordship of King Jesus rather than our culture. And I'm telling you, I think the world would want in on that. They would want to experience that gift that God gives to us. A couple community group questions for you guys as you gather together this week. Do you practice the Sabbath on a regular basis? Why or why not? This is not intended to shame anybody. If you don't practice it, it's not a way of showing how wrong you are. It's just a way of trying to get, help you process uh, what are some barriers for you if, if you don't practice it. Second, what rules have you found 
help you do good on the Sabbath. I gave you some of my own family's rules. What ways has rule-keeping or bondage to our culture's expectations hindered your enjoyment of God and His good gifts? So those are some ways to kind of dig a little bit deeper. I'm going to pray, and then let's respond to God together. Father, I just want to take a moment to pause and thank you for your gift that you give to us. You are so good. You know what we need, God. You're so powerful. You're holding this world together, God, and and we, in our own pride, we, we think that we have to hold it together. We have to keep it together. We have to stay busy. We have to do what the culture tells us to do, and yet, God, you offer an alternative. Thank you. Jesus, you are our Lord. You are our King, and we've seen a glimpse of what it looks like when you reign as King. People get healed. Justice gets done. Nations come to you as you proclaim victory. Jesus, help us to come to you today and to rest in you. In Jesus, your name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.